0: Scripture passage this morning is Matthew four, twelve to 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and in leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadows of death, on them a light has been dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So his fame spread throughout Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and to Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Longest week ever.
1: Holy smokes. We made it though. We survived. Snovid 2021. I never thought I'd experience such joy as I did when I, when I heard that toilet tank filling with water. We got seven people in my house. Listen, it was a, it was a good sound. <laughs> oh, let's pray together. It's good to be here. Father, we are thankful uh, to live in such a time as this, and we are thankful for so many modern conveniences and modern technology, Um, and when we lose it, it's a good reminder that we don't endure trials nearly as well as we think we should or think we might, and so we're actually thankful for the reminder, God, and I pray that, you know, this year and last year that it would continue to help us, you would continue by your spirit to help us endure trials well in a godly way, in a way that honors you. Thank you for the reminder that self-sufficiency is a myth. And God, may we always be dependent upon you, relying upon you. Uh, May it help us be a more grateful people. Uh, There's so many things that we take for granted, and so I pray that we would continually, you would even use trials, some of which will continue to go on in weeks to come, as a reminder to be grateful for all things that we would endure these, these trials well, that we would endure these continued unprecedented times well, that we would endure these continued historic events in a way that honors you. God, we're thankful that you spared uh, so many homes, but also this church building that, that our pipes held up. We're thankful, thankful to be able to gather here and be encouraged after such a long week. And God, thank you for the birth of Gideon Hudgens. Pray for him and his health, and thank you for healthy mama healthy delivery and we pray for the Hudgens as they continue to adjust to new life would you be with them would you be near with them as they are tired and have so many mixed emotions and would they be steadfast focused on you and we pray for little Gideon that you would save him very early thankful that he's going to be surrounded by people who love you and who will pray for him and we pray that he uh, never knows a day uh, That he didn't love you and know you and trust you. So we pray for that even now. And God, we're thankful to be able to host uh, not only our students, but so many students this weekend here in this room as your word will be faithfully preached. And so we pray that you would bear much fruit this weekend. We pray that kids who don't know you, have not professed faith, would be challenged by the reality of Jesus and would... Would profess faith this weekend. And we pray for those who already do profess faith that you would strengthen that faith, that you would encourage them, that it would be a weekend that's not just some type of weekend high or camp high, but would actually change trajectories and students would be hit by your word in such a fresh way that it changes their direction. Pray for Josh, who will be preaching, that you would give him a, a fruitful week this week of preparation and that he would be moved by your word and then would come and preach in power. God, thank you for who you are, rich in love, grand in splendor. And God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself and you have preserved your word written for us. And you promise that it will not return empty. And so we ask that it be effective this morning as we open it up. Yet again, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but this word will endure forever. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I love church history. I love all history, but I especially love church history because it's history, it's cliche, but it's His story. It really is. The Holy Spirit has a history, God has worked. In various places throughout the centuries, and beginning in the book of Acts, the church is born, the Spirit lit the flame, and the spread of Christianity is truly amazing. I know we can tend to get discouraged here in the West, rightly so at times, but did you know that last Sunday there were more Christians in church in China than there was in all of Europe combined the Christian faith has grown from 11.4 million in East Asia that's China Korea Japan 11.4 million 50 years ago to today 171.1 million Christians in 1910 there were 12 million Christians in Africa 12 million today 630 million Christians in Africa. It's incredible. And this morning we get a glimpse of how it all got started. So open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue to walk through it, chapter 4. And let's consider three points. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, the call of Christ, and the spread of the Gospel. So first here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus begins his ministry chapter 4, verse 12, the Holy Spirit through Matthew. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Quoting Isaiah 9, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So John here, John's arrested. He's arrested for speaking truth to power. Learn about that later. So Jesus heads to Galilee and he lives in Capernaum in this territory Of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew loves his geography. Why? Because this is history here. Why else, though? Two main reasons. First, once again, how many times have we seen this? So that the scripture might be fulfilled. God is sovereignly orchestrating history so that the life of his son Jesus. Fulfills exactly what he had predicted all over the place in the Old Testament. Matthew here quotes from Isaiah 9. So it's Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. But remember, when the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, oftentimes they've got the whole broader context in mind. And you will know Isaiah 9. You may not be able to think of it, but let me read it. And you'll all know it because it's so popular around Christmas time. This is just a few verses later from what he quoted Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. We'll do this. And so what Matthew's showing is, yes, light's going to dawn. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will shine his light on the Gentiles. How? Through this prince of peace who will rule the world. And the second reason he quotes Isaiah 9 here is to give us a hint of where the story is going. He calls it here Galilee of the Gentiles. It was this circuit of about 20 cities. And it was a Jewish province, but it was far from Jerusalem. It was, like, it was a nickname, Galilee of the Gentiles, kind of like America the melting pot. It was known as being mostly Gentile, and so it was written off by the Jews. It was written off as a mixed population. They're, well, they're not pure Jewish people like we are, but that's where Jesus goes. He goes to Galilee of the Gentiles because Jesus loves the unimpressive, the down and out the marginalized, the written off. You'd think that the light would come from Jerusalem, the city of David, but we're going to see in this gospel as we walk through it, that place is dark. This gospel is going to go beyond Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's going to go to the Gentiles, which shouldn't surprise us, right? If, we've been, if you've been here with us, how did Matthew 1 start? It tells us the bloodline of Jesus. And remember, there's Gentiles in the bloodline of Jesus, those four Gentile ladies. And then in Matthew chapter 2, who comes to worship this king of Israel? Well, it's not the Jewish leadership, actually. They're opposed to him. They try to kill him. Who is it? It's these magi, these Gentile wise men. So Matthew here is showing us that the global purpose of God is the glad submission to Christ among all the people's. So Jesus begins his ministry. Gentiles will be included. And what does he do? Look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus begins his ministry. And what does he do? He begins to preach. It's actually what John was doing too, right? Flip a page back to chapter 3, verse 1. Notice how John begins his ministry. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. Preaching has always been important in the church. Preaching is important because of this book, Preaching the Word. It's not that preaching is important, but preaching the Word is important. Preaching has always been one of God's main ways that he acts in the world. Listen to J.C. Riley. He says, preaching is the principal means which God has always been pleased to use for the conversion and edification of souls. The brightest days of the church have been those when preaching has been honored. The darkest days of the church have been those when it has been lightly esteemed. End quotes. And we are in dark days, as you know, friends, but the preaching of the word is vitally important. It's really the most important thing about the local church. Listen to what Paul tells his protege, Timothy. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God maybe your translation says inspired this is what the word is this is the origin of the word it comes from God this is the word of God which is why it's so important he says it's profitable for four things for teaching for reproof for correction and for training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work I charge you In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Teaching and preaching the word is vitally important and that's why Jesus begins doing it. He begins his preaching ministry. What's his message? He says, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is Is at hand. And again, isn't that exactly what John was doing? Flip back a page at chapter 3, verse 2. John came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And remember what repentance is. It's often mocked, but it's actually a beautiful word. It's a total change of life, it's a turning from sin to God. It's a complete and lasting change of mind, heart, and life. It's dropping our agenda. It's taking on his agenda. It's removing ourself from being Lord of our lives and it's submitting to Christ as Lord. God's agenda through his word must replace and rewrite our own agenda. And what does repentance look like? Well, I got good news. We're going to spend several, I don't know, probably months in the next three chapters. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What does repentance look like? Jesus is going to lay it out in detail. Repent and believe. That's the fundamental message of Christianity right from the beginning. Two sides of the same coin. Turn from sin, turn to Christ. There's no true faith without repentance. There's no true repentance without faith. It's the fundamental message. Listen to the way Paul puts it in Acts chapter 20 as he's preaching in Ephesus. He says, you yourselves know. And faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the fun, fundamental call. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not sure. You know what the, the fundamental call to you is? It's repent and believe. It's to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. It's summarized by the ABCs admit, believe, confess. Admit, I'm a sinner. That's the first step. If you don't think you're a sinner, Jesus has nothing for you. You admit, yes, I'm a sinner. I know that I need forgiveness. And believe that Jesus is the one who provides that forgiveness. He is lord he is savior and then finally we confess it publicly so tell somebody tell a friend come tell me and then we go public in believers baptism jesus says repent for because the kingdom of heaven is at hand remember that kingdom of heaven it's the same as kingdom of god matthew avoids the word god out of reverence and what is it we've already talked about it in chapter three but it's the arrival of God's sovereign, saving, heavenly rule on earth. But simply, it's the rule of God. And Jesus says it's now. The kingdom of heaven is now. It's now and not yet. It's already here with Jesus in the first century, but it will be fully here when he comes again. But he says, I'm bringing you. The kingdom of heaven then is not life after death, but the life of heaven on earth now. Remember, we'll learn in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the kingdom of heaven is God taking back his world. He's becoming king through Jesus. And it's different than what some of us and certainly what his disciples would have expected. It's a spiritual kingdom now. His rule is spiritual. Jesus says in Luke 17, my kingdom's not of this world. In John 18, Luke 17, he says, my kingdom's not something to be observed, like, look, there it is or here it is. But it's in the midst of you, he says. It's a revolution. The sovereign rule of heaven is invading earth at last through Jesus and as we'll see through his people. Okay, so Jesus first begins his ministry through preaching, but that's not all. Let's consider secondly, the call of Christ. Look at verse 18. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Simon and Andrew were fishermen. Isn't that interesting? If you were coming in to become king, to take over the world, who would you choose? Probably the important, the influential, The wealthy, the movers and shakers, the politicians, the CEOs. And Jesus chooses one of the humblest ranks in life. He chooses fishermen. His kingdom task force is going to wear a blue collar and have grimy fingernails and stink like fish. And what does he say to them? Look at verse 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says, follow me. He actually says this a lot. He says this 13 times in the gospels. Follow me, he says. Now, normally in the ancient world, in the ancient Jewish world, what would happen is if someone wanted to learn from a rabbi, wanted to become a student of a rabbi, the student took the initiative. The student would go to the rabbi and say, can I be your apprentice, your disciple, your student?" But here, not this rabbi. This rabbi takes the initiative and he says, You follow me. Comes out of nowhere. Follow me. I first thought of that scene in Captain Phillips, Tom Hanks. Remember the Somali pirates? They take over the ship and they're taking over, and he says, Look at me. Look at me. I'm the captain now. Jesus says, I'm the captain, follow me. And he says, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men, which actually, yet again, is an allusion to the Old Testament. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. It's Exodus. But as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel out of the north country. And out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. New Exodus. Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord. And they will catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters. And they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. Remember, friends, the story of Jesus is the completion, the culmination, the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And Jesus and his disciples now are gathering in the exiles. They're going fishing for people. And so notice right from the get-go, the call of Jesus, the call of Christ, and the mission of Christ go together. Discipleship has this outward, this missional impulse right from the beginning. To be a disciple, therefore, is to be one who makes disciples. To be a Christian is to be an evangelist. To be a Christian is to be a missionary. Spurgeon famously said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. The call of Christ and the mission of Christ go together. Look at verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there he saw two other brothers James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father mending their nets and he called them immediately they left the boats and their father and followed him notice this response it should be our response immediate obedience there was just something compelling about this man his authority was unique he's lord and so when he calls, they leave it all to follow Christ. They leave work and they leave family. I mean, just think about the economic sacrifice here. They weren't well off to begin with. And they leave behind any financial security to follow the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, a couple of weekends ago, I was with some pastors and there was this one guy who's been in the ministry, I think four years or so, and he started in Houston and he was a CFO at a really, really big company and felt the call of Christ to go into vocational ministry. Quite the downsize. Leaving what all the world thinks is essential to follow God into ministry. Super compelling and encouraging. But truly, at the end of the day, he would say, and so would they, that it's no sacrifice at all. In fact, flip over to Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake. I will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. There's no sacrifice at all. Economic sacrifice, relational sacrifice, right? This leaving here, it would not have made their father happy. If they had families, the standard of living was about to change. But again, the call of Christ must take priority. It's a little bit jarring for us today, but it's a clear and prominent theme in the ministry of Jesus. Look back at Matthew chapter 8, just to stay in Matthew. Verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Wow. Wow. Look over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 21. He warns us brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Look over at chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus demands absolute unqualified loyalty. It's not all, though. Flip another page, look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him, but he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Sometimes it requires relational sacrifice to follow the Lord and some of you have experienced this already and yet others will we will as Christians who actually believe the Bible increasingly be hated by people for holding to truths that have been just basic Christianity for 2,000 years and some of it will come from our own family we got to buckle up Jesus says follow me and let's learn from these disciples. What's their response? It's immediate obedience. They don't delay. We shouldn't delay. Some of you know some areas right now that God is calling you to. And you're putting it off. You're delaying. Don't procrastinate. Obedience. Learn from these disciples and their immediate obedience. Follow their example by following Jesus with abandoned. Well, if you've been in the church, this is all pretty familiar territory, isn't it? But zoom out a little bit and just consider actually how surprising this is. The first recorded action of the Son of God is to gather a group. A group of followers who are committed to him is so different than so many other religious figures or heroes. He tells them, leave it all behind, commit yourselves to a total change of life for the sake of me, for the sake of this rabbi. And so from here on in this story of Jesus, this theological biography, we're not going to be reading merely of Jesus. We're going to be reading of Jesus and his people, Jesus and his posse, Jesus and his disciples. He has this small group of people. That he's living life with and that he's doing ministry with and that he's doing ministry through. That's the way it works. That's the master plan of discipleship. This is why we do what we do at Southside Baptist Church. Jesus had the crowds. There's a place for crowd ministry. And he had the disciples, and then within the disciples, he got the 12, right? And then even within the 12, there's that smaller group. This is one of the reasons why we push D groups, it's one of our engines of ministry here. D groups, if you don't know, are groups of three to six men or three to six women who are meeting together weekly, studying the Word, studying a book about the Word, fighting sin together. And the goal is multiplication, the goal is replication. That's the model of Jesus. He didn't start with crowds of 10,000, he really started with three 12 crowds. And how? Does God work through it? Well, it starts slow, but it transforms the world over time. This, and for fishermen, this is what it looks like for the kingdom to dawn. You know, the reader with fresh eyes here would read this story and read here in chapter 4, verse 17, about the announcement and the dawning of the kingdom of heaven, about God becoming king. And they might expect something a little more dramatic. Something big time. The king is here. God's taking back the world, but what does the king do? He gathers four local, no name fishermen. By which his rule will begin to be implemented as they go fishing for people. The revolution will begin with these four fishermen. It's going to be a slow start, <laughs> but you know what? That's what he says the kingdom is about. Flip over to Matthew 13 as he teaches about the way the kingdom spreads. Really important parable as we think about the ministry of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, 31, Jesus is teaching. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heavens is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. This is the kingdom, begins the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants. And becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. It starts really slow. But over time, grows magnificently. Third, the gospel spreads. Look at verse 23. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus begins and he begins to travel around and notice what he's doing here. All four of these verbs in verse 23 are important. He went, he teaches, he proclaims, and he heals. It's actually helpful to see the structure of Matthew. You know, scripture is dually authored. It has two authors. God and then whoever human it might be. So Matthew, ultimately written by God, but Matthew also wrote it. And this Holy Spirit moved Matthew to write it. And Matthew actually structures his gospel really neatly. And so let me show you, geek out for a minute here. I appreciate this. Maybe you will. You saw in verse 23 what he does. And then look over at chapter 9, verse 35. Notice the similarity of the language of chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So what is Jesus about? Well, he's about teaching and preaching and he's about healing, right? And this is what we see in Matthew. We're in chapter 4. Well, in 5, 6, and 7, what is Jesus going to be doing? Teaching and proclaiming the Sermon on the Mount. Then in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, what are we going to see? Jesus go and, and heal and then in Matthew chapter 10, verse 35, he's going to send out his apostles, and it's going to be much the same. Sorry, chapter 10, verse 7. It says, and proclaim, Jesus tells his people, proclaim as you go. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers. So the rest of the gospel of Matthew is this kingdom of heaven, first through Jesus, then through his people. Five to seven, eight to nine, and beyond. And he says here, for the first time in chapter 4, verse 23, that they should proclaim The gospel of the kingdom. What is it that's going to be proclaimed in teaching? It's the gospel of the kingdom. And in Matthew, this is actually the first time the word gospel has been used, surprisingly. And again, we're all new at this, but if you were the first hearer of that word gospel, what would you think of? Gospel. Everybody knew it meant good news. Well, it kind of depends on your background. So if if you were of a Greek background... You would hear it with Greek ears, obviously, and it was a very commonly used term. It was a technical term, euangelion, good news. And it was used of various things, usually around the emperor, around the king. And so if there was a, a birthday of a king or even more commonly a, a victory of the emperor, well, would the emperor's off at war and he wins, he would send a herald back to Rome who would announce good news. Or most commonly when a new emperor had come to town. So there's a new Caesar. Announce the good news. So if you're from a Greek here, that's what you're going to hear is the new kings in town. But if you're a Jewish background, which would have been most of Jesus' hearers, and you hear gospel, you're going to think of something else, some other background, a very Jewish background. So let me read from those really important chapters in Isaiah. Chapter 40, verse 9 says this. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. There it is. Of gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. What is the good news then? Well, this is about God becoming king and restoring his people. Let me read again from chapter 52 of Isaiah. What is the good news of Isaiah? 52.7 says, verses you'll be familiar with, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings euangelia, gospel good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God is becoming king. And of course, we kept reading in Isaiah, we know how he does it through the suffering servant of chapter 53. And so what is the good news? Well, they're really not that different, are they? There's a new king in town. A new king who's going to come and restore and renew and redeem his people and reign as king. And that's why Jesus says it's the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus comes as a preacher. And he comes as a miracle worker. He's going to announce and display the new creation. The healings that he will do and his apostles will do. They'll be signs of the dawning kingdom. They'll be a foretaste of what the world will be like one day when the curse is totally reversed. Again, J.C. Ryle, one of my favorites says that these miracles show our Lord's skill as a spiritual physician. No bodily disease is incurable before him. And they show us his heart. We'll see again and again and again in chapters eight and following how compassionate the Lord is. Brawl says, he rejected no one who came to him. He refused no one. However, loathsome and diseased, he had an ear to hear all and a hand to help all and a heart to feel for all. There is no kindness like his. His compassions fail not. And then Matthew 4 says, the gospel goes forth. I love the way he puts it. He says, the fame of Jesus spreads and spreads. And spreads and is spreading from the shores of Galilee to Abilene, Texas. From four ragtag fishermen to a multitude no one can number. The mustard seed is growing. There are now 2.3 billion people who claim Jesus Christ as Lord. Four Christians in Matthew chapter 4 to 30% of the world's population 2,000 years later. And again, I know America's not looking so hot, but there's more in the world than us, believe it or not. 3,000 people a day become Christians in Latin America. God's at work. The fame of Jesus continues to spread. So how should this inform us today? Well, it should inform us about our ministry. And first and foremost, we've got to obey the Lord. We must leave it all for him. Center our lives around the king. Jesus must actually be your Lord. Schaefer said if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And so that's the first step is obedience. And when he does become Lord, we're going to see that we do have a ministry. Notice here what we've seen. Jesus is baptized and then he begins his ministry. Did you know that's the case for you too, every Christian? Your baptism is your commission to ministry. All believers are called to some kind of ministry. You have a gift that God calls you to use. Peter calls the church a priesthood of a kingdom of priests. That's why we adhere to the great reformation truth of the priesthood of all believers. I'm no priest. We don't need priests. We're all priests. We all have access to God and we all have a ministry. What do priests do? Priests are mediators between the world and God. That's you. Every one of us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a priest. You're a representative. You're an ambassador. And so we take this message forth. That's what we should be about. We should be about wanting the spread of Jesus to continue, for his fame to increase. We're to be fishers of men, fishers of people, as the gender accurate translations are now putting it, as if we didn't know that men was inclusive of males and females. Fishers of people. I like to fish. I don't think I'm very good at fishing, but I enjoy it. But really, there's not a whole lot of skill in fishing, is there? I know some of you avid fishermen are going to want to take issue with that. But there's really not a whole lot that we can do. I'll often take the kids over to Kirby when it's not frozen and fish, and Karis will often do the best. And she'll even catch bass with this little bitty hook and worms. It's really the same with evangelism. We're limited in what we can do. At the end of the day, we cannot catch anyone. God's the one who does the catching. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, no one can come to me. Notice that word can. He says, no one can. No one has the ability. Why? Because we're all spiritually dead. He says, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's what's got to happen. The Father's got to draw. And you know what's fascinating? That word for draw in John 6:44 used again in 6:65, is the same word that's often used of the disciples fishing, drawing in the nets. God must do it. We cast the nets, but the Lord must draw. We sow the seed, but the Lord must bring the growth. You know, really, at the end of the day, bait is what matters in fishing, right? Got to have the right baits. We can't provide the bait. God provides the bait. What's the bait? The bait's the message. Paul says some plant, some water, but it's God who gives the growth. So what's our job? Our job is the same as the disciples, is to be fishers of people, to be an ambassador. We don't write the message. We don't edit the message. Our job is to relay the message. We are to accurately herald this message. And what is that message? We all got to get it down really well. One of the ways in our membership class that we provide uh, hooks for the gospel message is four hooks. If you don't know these, know these. It's a great way to understand what the gospel is. It's a great way to make sure you've covered all the gospel when you're sharing with people. And that's God, man, Christ, response. It's an easy way to summarize the message of Christianity. Who is God? God is the creator. He's loving. He's father. He's also holy. Who are we? We're the glory of creation made in the image of God, but we're also sinners. Which causes a problem. If God is holy and we are sinful, there's a problem which is why we need a solution, which comes to Christ. Christ came to die for sinners, to die in the place of us, to redeem us. We could never get there on our own. Christ had to come. And then what is our response? Well, we've seen it through John the Baptist. We've seen it through Jesus himself. Repent and believe. That message, our job is to faithfully share that message. And that's what God uses. Romans 1.16, not ashamed of the gospel, Four, because it is the power of God for salvation, this gospel message is what God uses to save people. Isn't that free? Isn't that encouraging for us evangelists? God does the drawing, we cast the net. I want to close this morning with one specific application. This week, seven days, make it your goal to share that gospel with one person. As soon as I said that, I think the Lord put one person on many of your minds. You already know what you're supposed to do. Let me challenge you, exhort you to be bold, take a step, and seek to share the gospel with one person this week. Pray, God, open a door. Give me a softball. I want to. And then have your eyes wide open. And he may not. Maybe he won't grant it. But let's try. Let's pray. Let's look and let's seek to share the gospel with somebody this week. If you do, tell another member about it. Tell a D group. Tell a home group. Tell somebody, hey, I got to share with so-and-so. Would you pray for them this week? And ask God to save. I was really encouraged last week because we've talked about who's our one And I've had had a couple, and I got a a message from a brother that I've been wanting to share the gospel with. I haven't gotten there. And he got saved out of a a cult, basically. He got saved. I had nothing to do with it. I mean, I would prayed. It's what God loves to do. And so let me just challenge you. Pray, obey, take a step. Make it your goal this week. Share the gospel with one person. The global purpose of God is the glad submission to Christ among all peoples, and he's given us. role to play. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your plan and your purpose. Small starts, but massive endings, and we're glad to be called and swept up in it. Thank you that somewhere along the way, you sent a fisher for us, some mom, some dad, some friend, some coach, Some acquaintance told us the message of Jesus, and you used that message to turn us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That message that we weren't interested in, that message that might have made us yawn, that message that seemed irrelevant to our lives all of a sudden became precious, and we trusted in Christ. As we think about our own testimonies and your grace in our lives, would it be emboldening because it was people just like us, imperfect people, people who struggle day in and day out, people who can't answer every objection and question that you use to ultimately bring us to faith. God, I pray for the relationships that are already built in this room that you would open doors, whether it's family or coworkers or neighbors, open doors that the gospel might be shared and that we might be able to celebrate as you continue to draw people to Jesus. Help us to be faithful. May we have the of the disciples in all that we do, immediate, unquestioned, unqualified obedience to the King of Kings. Prayed in his name. Amen.